Section 7 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bryce, Youngstown. Chapter 2, Habsburg and Valois by Stanley Leeds, Part 2. In spite of their ill success in two campaigns, the French did not give up their hope of reconquering Milan. Financial distress had again forced the emperor to reduce his forces, and the necessary means were with difficulty collected from the Italian towns and princes. The Netherlands had up to this time been the only trustworthy source of revenue, and the expenditure of Charles's court had made great inroads upon his treasury. Money was now coming into the Castilian exchequer, but these funds had been pledged in advance. The Italian army was a year in arrear. Ferdinand was begging for money for measures against the Turks. The desperate appeal of Rhodes for aid in 1522 had to pass unregarded, and this outlying bulwark of Christendom capitulated at the close of 1522. Although Charles was in Spain to stimulate operations, Fuenterrabia was successfully defended by the French against all attacks until February 1524. On the other hand, since the autumn of 1522, the Allies had been counting on powerful aid in France itself. The Duke of Bourbon, with his extended possessions in the center of France, was almost the only remaining representative of the great Appanage princes of the 15th century. Although his wings had been clipped by legislative and even more by administrative changes, he still commanded a princely revenue and considerable local support. His position in the kingdom had been recognized by the gift of the highest of crown offices, the post and dignity of Constable of France. But his title to the vast possessions which he held was not beyond question. The Duchy of Bourbon had been preserved from reunion with the crown under Louis Twelfth by the influence of Anne, Duchess of Bourbon, better known as Anne of Beijou, who first procured for her daughter Suzanne the right to succeed her father in the duchy, 1498, and then, 1505, married her to Count Charles of Montpensier, her cousin, who represented the rights of a younger branch of the Bourbon house. By this marriage, Charles of Montpensier was elevated to the Duchy of Bourbon, but when his wife, Suzanne, died without issue in 1521, his title became questionable at law. From motives, probably of cupidity and of cupidity alone, a double claim was now advanced against him. The Queen Mother, Duchess of Angoulême, claimed the female fiefs as being more closely related to the main line of the Bourbon house, and the King claimed the male fiefs as, as cheating to the crown. Against claimants so powerful, Charles of Bourbon felt himself unable to litigate before the Parliament of Paris. The points of law were nice and the tribunal amenable to royal influence. He turned, therefore, to the enemies of his country. He approached Charles V and boldly asked for his sister, Eleonora, widow of the King of Portugal, in marriage, offering in return to raise 500 men-at-arms and 8,000 foot-soldiers, and to cooperate with an invasion from the east. But the intrigues became known, and although the king hesitated to arrest his constable when he had him at Paris in his power, and though again in August 1523, 
when the king passed through Molins to take part in the great expedition to Italy, the constable was allowed to stay behind on a plea of sickness. At length a preemptory summons was sent ordering him to join the king at Lyons. On this the duke, who had been looking in vain for the approach of aid from the east, took to flight and, after attempting to escape to Spain by way of Roussillon, succeeded at length in reaching the frontier of Franche-Comte. The elaborate plans of the Allies, which included the dispatch of a force of 10,000 Landschnicht to Bourbon, an invasion of Picardy by a joint army of 21,000 men, and an attack on Languedoc with 34,000 men from Spain, were thus defeated. The constable brought with him only his name and his sword, but the danger was judged sufficiently real to prevent Francis from leading his army in person into the Melanese, as had been intended. Great preparations had been made for an expedition on a royal scale, but the Admiral Bonnevay was appointed to take command instead of the king. While Bonnevay was advancing on Italy, some attempt was made by the Allies to execute the other parts of the plan. The Duke of Suffolk and the Count Van Buren advanced by Picardy to the neighborhood of Compiègne and Saint-Lys. The German force threatened the frontier from the side of Brest, while a Spanish force crossed the Pyrenees in October and threatened Bayonne. The delays had shattered the effect of the combination, but the kingdom was almost undefended, and even Paris was thought to be insecure. Yet little came of all these efforts. The Germans from Brest made an ineffectual attempt to join the Suffolk and Buren, but were hunted back across the frontier by the Count of Guise. The leaders of the northern expedition showed little enterprise, and money as usual was deficient. The Spanish army advanced upon Bayonne, but was repulsed by the vigorous defense of Lautrec and retired ineffective. In spite of a liberal subsidy in August from the Corte of Castile and the seizure in October of gold coming on private account from the Indies, the great design for the partition of France proved entirely abortive. Meanwhile, Bonnevay had pursued his path to Lombardy. His army consisted of 1,500 men-at-arms and some 25,000 foot Swiss, Germans, French, and Italians. On the 14th of September, he reached the Ticino. Prospero Colono, who was in command of the imperial troops, had no adequate resources with which to resist so powerful a foe in the field. Adrian VI, it is true, had recently announced his reluctant adhesion to the imperial party, and about the same time Venice had renounced her French alliance and concluded a league with Charles. But the value of these accessions had not begun to be felt when Adrian's death, September 14th, introduced uncertainty afresh at the very moment when Bonnevay appeared in Italy. Colonna was no longer supported by Pescara, but he had at his disposition Giovanni de' Medici, the celebrated leader of the black Italian bands, and Antonio de Leva. The imperial leaders abandoned the western part of the duchy to the French and retired on Milan. If Bonnevay had pressed on, he would have found the capital unready for defense. But his delay gave time to improvise protection, and when he arrived, an assault appeared impracticable. He determined to endeavor to reduce the city by famine. Besides Milan, Carlona still held Pavia, Lodi, and Cremona, and wisely confined his efforts to the retention of these important posts. 
Bonnevay divided his forces and sent Bayard to attack Lodi and Cremona. Lodi fell, but Cremona held out, and Bayard had to be recalled. The election of Clement VII on November 19th gave for the moment strength to the imperial side. Money was sent, and the Marquess of Mantua brought aid. Bonnevay was forced to abandon the siege of Milan and retire upon the Ticino. On December 28th, Prospero Colonna died, but Charles de Lanoy, the Viceroy of Naples, with the Marquess of Piscara, arrived to take his place, bringing with him a small supply of money and troops. Reinforcements came from Germany, and the imperialists, now supported more effectively by Venice, were able to take the offensive. They drove Bonnevay from Abiat Grasso, then from Vigovano to Novara. The reinforcements, which he was eagerly expecting from the Grissons at length, arrived at Chiavenna, but found neither men nor money to meet them. Giovanni de' Medici hung upon their flanks and drove the Grissons' levies back over the mountains. At length, Bonnevay was forced to leave Novara and endeavor to effect a junction with a force of 8,000 Swiss whom he met upon the Cessia. But this relief was too late. The morale of the army was destroyed. The remnants could only be saved by retreat. Bonnevay himself was wounded at this juncture, and the task of conducting the wearied and dispirited troops across the mountains fell upon Bayard. Bayard took command of the rear guard, and in protecting the movements of his comrades, fell mortally wounded by the ball of an arquebus, April 30, 1524. With him perished the finest flower of the French professional army in that age, the knight who had raised the ideal of a warrior's life to the highest point. But his last task was successfully accomplished. The Swiss effected their retreat by Aosta, the French by Sousa, and Brian Conn. The last garrison of the French in Lombardy capitulated. Adrian's successor, Guilio de' Medici, Clement VII, had been supported in his election by the imperial influence in spite of Charles's promises to Wolsey. Guilio had long controlled the papal policy under Leo, and it was assumed that he would tread the same path, but Clement had all the defects of his qualities. Supremely subtle and acute, he had not the constancy to follow up what he had once come to regard as a mistake. He relied upon his own ingenuity and duplicity, and endeavored to sail with every wind. Thus he failed alike to serve his own interests and those of his allies. Clement began almost at once to detach himself from the imperial alliance, dangerous in defeat, oppressive in the event of success. His efforts, however, to conclude a truce proved unsuccessful, and on May 25, 1524, a new compact was accepted by the Allies. The Duke of Bourbon was to invade France at the head of the victorious army of Italy. A joint expedition was to invade Picardy, and a Spanish army was to attack by way of Roussillon. Henry VIII seemed to see a chance of making good the pretensions of his ancestors to the French throne, and exacted from the unwilling Duke of Bourbon an oath of fidelity to himself as King of France. In July, the first point of this agreement was carried into effect. The Duke of Bourbon crossed the Alps in company with Piscara and invaded France, July 1st. His artillery joined him by sea at Monaco. Provence offered little resistance. The Duke entered Aix on August 9th, but the other movements were delayed, 
and it was thought dangerous to advance on Lyons without this support. Accordingly, it was determined to lay siege to Marseille, which was surrounded on August 19th. Francis had here shown unusual foresight, and the town was prepared for defense under the command of the Orsini captain, Renzo de Seri, who had shown himself throughout a passionate friend of France. The breaches in the walls were immediately protected by earthworks, and the besiegers could not venture an assault. The French navy, reinforced by Andrea Doria with his galleys, was superior to the invaders on the sea. Meanwhile, Francis was collecting with great energy an army of relief at Avignon. Unexampled tail were imposed, the clergy were taxed, the cities gave subsidies, and the nobles forced loans. Time pressed and the assault of Marseille was ordered for September 4th, but the troops recoiled before the danger. The Marquess of Pescara, hostile throughout to the enterprise and its leader, did not conceal his disapproval, and the project was abandoned. The promised aid from Roussillon was not sent, and the diversion in Picardy was not made. On September 29th, much against his will, the Duke of Bourbon ordered the retreat. The troops, ill-clothed, ill-provided, ill-shod, made their way across the mountains, closely pursued by Montmorency. Francis followed with his whole army and reached Vercelli on the same day that the retreating army arrived at Alba, about 16 miles south-southwest of Asti. With troops humiliated, discontented, exhausted, resistance in the field was impossible. The imperialists adopted the same strategy that had succeeded so well against Bonnevay. They determined to hold Alessandria, Pavia, Lodi, Pisagetone, Cremona. The citadel of Milan was garrisoned, and it was hoped that the city might be held. But it had suffered terribly from the plague, and on the approach of Francis, with his whole army, the attempt was given up. Bourbon, Lenoy, and Pescara retired to Lodi, and the defense of Pavia was entrusted to Antonio de Leva. Instead of following up the remnants of the imperial army to Lodi and crushing them or driving them east into the arms of their uncertain Venetian allies, Francis turned aside to make himself master of Pavia. The siege artillery opened fire on November 6th. An early assault having failed, Francis attempted to divert the course of the Ticino and by this means to obtain access to the south side of the town, which relied mainly on the protection of the river. But the winter rains rendered the work impossible. Francis determined to reduce the city by blockade. Meanwhile, he called up reinforcements from the Swiss and took Giovanni dei Medici into his pay. Italy prepared to take the side which appeared for the moment stronger. Venice hesitated in her alliance. Clement, while endeavoring to reassure the emperor as to his fidelity and ostensibly negotiating for an impossible peace, concluded on December 12, 1524, a secret treaty with France in which Florence and Venice were included. This treaty led both Clement and Francis to their ruin. Clement paid for his cowardly betrayal at the sack of Rome, and Francis was encouraged to detach a part of his army under the Duke of Albany to invade Naples, an enterprise which weakened his main force without securing any corresponding advantage. The Duke, after holding to ransom the towns of Italy through which he passed, reached the south of the papal territory, 
where he was attacked by the Colonna and driven back to Rome. It was hoped, however, that this diversion would induce their imperial generals to leave Lombardy to its fate and hurry to the protection of Naples. But reinforcements were coming in from Germany under Frundberg, and it was Naples that was left to fortune. On January 24, 1525, the imperial forces moved from Lodi. After a feint on Milan, they approached Pavia and encamped towards the east to wait their opportunity. Thence they succeeded in introducing powder and other most necessary supplies into the famished city. The seizure of Chiavenna on behalf of Charles recalled the Grisons' levy to the defense of their own territory. Reinforcements coming to Francis from the Alps were cut off and destroyed. Giovanni de' Medici was incapacitated by a wound, but the condition of the beleaguered city and lack of pay and provisions did not permit of further delay. It was decided to attack Francis in his camp and risk the issue. On the night of February 24th to 25th, the imperial army broke into the walled enclosure of the park of Mirabello. Delays were caused by the solid walls and day broke before the actual encounter. The news of the attack induced Francis to leave his entrenchments and to muster his army, which consisted of 8,000 Swiss, 5,000 Germans, 7,000 French infantry, and 6,000 Italians. He was not much superior in actual numbers, but stronger in artillery and cavalry. An attempt of the imperialists to join hands with the garrison of Pavia by marching past the French army, which had had time to adopt a perfect order of battle in the park, proved impossible under a flanking artillery fire. Nor was it possible to throw up earthworks and await assault, as Lanoi had hoped. A direct attack upon the French army was necessary. In the melee which ensued, it was almost impossible to disentangle the several causes of the issue, but it seems clear that the complete victory of the imperialists was due to the admirable fire discipline and tactics of the veteran Spanish arquebusiers to the attack of Antonio de Leva with his garrison from the rear, to an inopportune movement of the German troops of the French which masked their artillery fire, and perhaps in some measure to the cowardly example of flight set by the Duke of Alençon. The French army was destroyed, the French king was captured, and all his most illustrious commanders were taken prisoners or killed. As Ravenna marks the advent of artillery as a deciding factor in great battles, so perhaps Pavia may be said to mark the superiority attained by hand firearms over the pike. The Swiss pikemen were unable to stand against the Spanish bullets. Once more the duchy had been reconquered and it seemed lost forever to France. Francis was sent as a prisoner first to Pizzagetone and then to Spain. Here the unwanted restraint acting on a man so passionately devoted to field sports shook his health. He thought at one time of resigning the crown of France in favor of the Dauphin in order to discount the advantage possessed by Charles in the custody of his royal person. But he was at length constrained to accept the emperor's terms. The result was the Treaty of Madrid, signed by Francis on January 14, 1526, and confirmed by the most solemn oaths and by the pledge of the king's knightly honor, but with the deliberate and secretly expressed intention of repudiating its obligations. Francis was to marry Eleonora, 
the emperor's sister and the widow of the king of Portugal. He renounced all his rights over Milan, Naples, Genoa, Asti, together with the suzerainty of Flanders, Artois, and Tournai. He ceded to Charles the Duchy of Burgundy, in which, however, the traditional dependencies of the duchy were not included. The Duke of Bourbon was to be pardoned and restored to his hereditary possessions. Francis abandoned the Duke of Gelders and gave up all claims of Dabray to Navarre. As a guarantee for the execution of the treaty, the king's two eldest sons were to be surrendered to the emperor's keeping and Francis was to return as a prisoner in the event of non-fulfillment. In spite of the outcries of historians, the terms of this treaty must be regarded as moderate. Charles exacted nothing after his extraordinary success except what he must have considered to be his own by right. But how far his moderation was dictated by policy and how far by natural feelings of justice may remain undecided. The Duke of Bourbon and Henry VIII had pressed upon him the pursuit of the war, the invasion and dismemberment of France. Had Charles really aimed at European supremacy, this course was open to him. But he did not take it, whether from a prudent distrust of his English ally or from an honest dislike for unjust and perilous schemes of aggrandizement. That he took no pains to use his own victory for the furtherance of the ends of England may appear at first sight surprising, but Henry VIII had had no part in the victory of Pavia and almost none in any of Charles's successes. English subsidies had been a factor, though not a decisive factor, in the war, but English armed assistance had been uniformly ineffective. Even before the Battle of Pavia, Charles had known of Henry's contemplated change of side. Moreover, since the rejection of Henry's plans for the dismemberment of France, the English king had concluded an alliance with Louise of Savoy, the regent of France, and profited by his desertion to the extent of two millions of crowns. Charles owed nothing to Henry at the time of the Treaty of Madrid. Other considerations of a politic nature may have inclined Charles to moderation. The Pope, appalled by the disaster of Pavia, had been preparing against the emperor an Italian league. Francesco Sforza had been approached and had lent an ear to proposals of infidelity. Venice was secured. Even Pescara, Charles's own servant, had been sounded by Girolamo Moroni, the Chancellor of Milan, with the offer of the Kingdom of Naples. Pescara was discontented with the favor and good fortune of Lenoy, with his own position, the conditions of his service, and his rewards. He seems to have hesitated for a moment, but eventually disclosed all to Charles and threw Moroni into prison, July to October, 1525. Savorza was deprived of the chief places in the Milanese, retaining only the citadel of Milan and Cremona. But all this meant further trouble in Italy and pointed to an understanding with France, although Mercurino Gattinara throughout had urged that no reliance be placed upon French promises. Charles deserves credit for his prudence, if not for his generosity. The notion that Francis's permanent friendship could have been won by any greater liberality can be at once dismissed. Francis I was liberated at the French frontier on March 17, 1526, leaving his two little sons in his place. 
He at once made known his intentions by delaying and finally refusing the ratification of the Treaty of Madrid, and on May 22nd, at Cognac, a league was concluded against the emperor, in which Francesco Savorza, the Pope, Florence, and Venice joined with France. Savorza was to receive the Duchy of Milan, unimpaired. The states of Italy were to be restored to all their rights, and the French princes were to be released for a ransom of two million crowns. Henry VIII gave fair words and encouragement in abundance, but did not join the League. The aid of France was equally illusory. The Allies talked of peace, but in reality they courted war, and with it all the disasters which followed. The adhesion, however, vacillating of Henry VIII to the party of his enemies, set Charles free from any obligations toward Mary of England, and in March 1526 he concluded his marriage with Isabella of Portugal, a union which he had long desired, securing to him an ample dowry and promising peace between the two Iberian kingdoms. The affairs of Italy still occupied his attention. Francesco Savorza received the first blow. Pescara was dead, but Charles still had able and devoted servants in Italy. With the troops at their disposal, Antonio de Leyva and Alfonso de Guasto besieged Francesco Savorza in the citadel of Milan. After the League of Cognac had been concluded, the Allies advanced to his relief. The imperialists were in piteous case. Left without means of support, they were obliged to live upon the country and to levy money from the citizens of Milan. In consequence, they had to deal with an actual revolt of the inhabitants, which was with difficulty repressed, while the siege of the citadel was still vigorously maintained. Francesco Maria, Duke of Urbino, moving deliberately and cautiously at the head of the united Venetian and papal army, after seizing Lodi, advanced to the relief of Savorza and was only at a short distance from the town when the Duke of Bourbon opportunely arrived with a small force, July 5th. Bourbon had been named as Duke of Milan to compensate him for the loss of his French possessions, which Francis had refused to restore. The Duke of Urbino then commenced an attack, which if vigorously pushed might have resulted in the destruction of the imperialist forces, between the invaders and the citadel, and among a hostile population. But he showed neither resolution nor activity, and on July 25th, the citadel surrendered. The Duke of Urbino, now reinforced by some 6,000 Swiss, the only aid which Francis supplied, turned to the siege of Cremona, in which he consumed his resources and two months of valuable time. The final capture of the city, September 23rd, was an inadequate compensation. The attitude of Charles towards Clement VII at this juncture was expressed in his letter of September 17, 1526, in which the misdeeds of the Pope were systematically set forth. This letter was afterwards printed in Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands as a manifesto to all Christendom. The arraignment was severe, but not on the whole unjust. In view of his wrongs, real and supposed, the means used by the emperor are not surprising. His emissary, Hugo de Moncada, after vainly endeavoring to win back Clement, had turned to the still powerful family of Colonna. These nobles, Ghibellines by tradition, soldiers by profession, and raiders by inclination, 
After terrifying the Pope by forays in the south and by the capture of Anagni, concluded with him a treacherous peace, August 22nd. The Pope, already overburdened by his efforts in the north, was thus induced to disarm at home, and on September 20th, the colonists struck at Rome. They penetrated first into the southern part of the town, and then into the Leonine city, where they sacked the papal palace and the dwellings of several cardinals. Clement took refuge in the castle of St. Angelo, where he was shortly forced to conclude a truce of four months with the emperor, promising to withdraw his troops from Lombardy and his galleys from before Genoa, and giving hostages for his good faith. The emperor disavowed the actions of the allies, but profited by the result, which was indeed only partial, since Giovanni de' Medici, with the best of the papal troops, continued to fight for the League in the name of the King of France. An amnesty promised to the Colonna was disregarded, and in full consistory their lands were declared to be confiscated, and a force was sent to execute the sentence. Inert as ever, after the capture of Cremona, the Duke of Urbino allowed three weeks to pass before, strengthened by the arrival of 4,000 French, he moved upon Milan, not to assault, but to blockade. These delays were invaluable to Charles. They allowed him to win the adhesion of Alfonso, Duke of Ferrara, which was facilitated by the papal hostility. They allowed him to send troops from Spain to Naples, December, and to collect German levies who arrived in Italy under Frunberg in November. Their presence in the Duchy of Mantua forced the Duke of Urbino to abandon the siege of Milan. He divided his army, leaving a part at Bari on the Adda, and advanced with the remainder against Frunsberg, whom he found at Borgafort near the Po. In the skirmish which followed, Giovanni dei Medici was wounded, and he died shortly afterwards at Mantua. The Duke of Urbino gave up all further attempt to prevent the junction of the imperialists and returned to Mantua. The want of energy displayed by the Duke of Urbino throughout this campaign is not wholly to be attributed to his character. He had a well-grounded mistrust of the troops of which his army was composed and doubted their competence to face the Spaniards. Moreover, the Venetians were uncertain as to the Pope's real intentions and were reluctant to push matters to an extreme. The success of Charles, however, was principally due to this policy of inaction. The Duke of Bourbon, now extorted by the extremist measures the money necessary to enable him to move, requiring, for instance, 20,000 ducats of Moroni as the price of his life and pardon, and at length the forces met at Fiorenzuola in the territory of Piacenza, February 1527. The united army then moved towards the Papal States, watched at a distance by the Duke of Urbino, while garrisons were sent to save Bologna and Piacenza. The Pope, in extreme alarm, threatened by Bourbon from the north, and Lannoy with the Colonna from the south, implored Francis to act, and showed himself willing to make whatever terms he could with the emperor. Then, on hearing of a small success of his troop in the south at Frosinone, January 1527, he determined to pursue the war. A sudden raid by Renzo de Seri on the Abruzzi seemed at first to promise a welcome diversion, but very soon the invasions of Naples proved as unprofitable as the campaigns in the north. 
the project of conferring the kingdom on Louis, Count of Vaudemont, the brother of the Duke of Lorraine, which Clement had put forward, faded into the visionary. The Pope shifted his ground again and on March 15th concluded a truce of eight months for himself and Florence. End of section 7, recording by Bryce, Youngstown, 1946-1949.